Boris Johnson has run scared while MPs debate Tory corruption. Tonight on Tisky Sour, we'll tell you about all the sordid details he'd prefer we all forgot. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm good, Michael. Are you feeling sleazy? I'm actually, an, I'm an upstanding journalist. I don't take bribes. I don't have second consultancy jobs. Um, I like to think of myself as a pretty straight edge type. Are you feeling sleazy? Yeah, I mean, I would after that 200k from JP Morgan, but you know, what's a gal gonna do? I've got to was... pay for an expensive duck house and that second home allowance isn't quite as generous as I'd like it to be. I was wondering how you paid for those velvety tops. Tonight, we're also going to be talking about the scandal um, of oil lobbyists being overrepresented at COP26. Um, and we've got a couple of clips for you from Breakfast TV that you know, tell us a lot about Britain. Let's get going. Asked about the row over his botched defence of Owen Paterson, Boris Johnson today said the following. Labour want to focus, the opposition obviously want to focus on a particular a case, a particular MP who uh, suffered a serious personal tragedy and who's now resigned. Prime Minister, with can respect. I just, can I just finish you... off? Uh, and what, what, what we want to do, and I, and I frankly, you know, I don't think there's much more to be said about that particular case. I, I really don't. Boris Johnson might not think there's anything more to say about the Owen Paterson affair as he opportunistically poses across Britain's hospitals, but much of the country still does have things to say and questions to ask. Indeed, someone in Tory HQ must realise the upset caused, as Stephen Barclay was today sent to the Commons to deliver this apology. I would like first and foremost to express my regret and that of my ministerial colleagues over the mistake made last week. We recognise that there are concerns across the House over the standards system and also the process by which possible breaches of the Code of Conduct are investigated. Yet while sincerely held concerns clearly warrant further attention, the manner in which the Government approached last week's debate conflated them with the response to an individual case. That was Stephen Barclay speaking for the government as Boris Johnson had had run scared. He couldn't make it back to Westminster to take part in that debate. That was much to the chagrin of Tory chief or former Tory chief whip, sorry, Mark Harper. Politics, Mr Speaker, is a team game. It's essential to work with your colleagues to deliver anything. But if the team captain is to expect the loyalty and backbenchers and ministers to listen to the direction of the team captain, they deserve that decisions are well thought through and soundly based. Uh, and if in, on occasion, as on this occasion, and I think the um, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster set that out very well, the Minister of the Cabinet Office set it out very well, and he was a very valued member of my WHIP's office, um, and he did apologise on behalf of the government. But if the team captain gets it wrong, then I think he should come and apologise to the public and to this House. That's the right thing to do uh, in terms of de de demonstrating leadership. As you can tell from that second clip, even among the Tory benches, there is some desire to make the leadership pay for their disgraceful attempted stitch-up last week. It's clear, though, the scandal blown open by Owen Paterson goes much deeper than any botched decisions made in number 10. On the one hand, questions have been raised about what other lobbying 
Owen Patterson might have partaken in, other than what was already revealed in that standards report. On the other, there is now a long overdue debate about the scandal of second jobs held by MPs. On that first question, so pertaining to Owen Patterson, focus has centred on Randocks and the circumstances through which they won just under half a billion pounds worth of government contracts for COVID testing. Randox is the diagnostic company that paid Patterson £100,000 a year. According to the Sunday Times, the Department of Health and Social Care has refused to release minutes of a phone call in spring last year between Patterson, the former Northern Ireland secretary who was paid £100,000 a year by Randox, and Lord Bethel, the Tory peer who was the minister responsible for testing contracts at the time. The phone call took place on April the 9th, a week and a half after the company was awarded a £133 million deal to supply and analyse test kits, and months before it received another £346 million contract. This is a pretty suspicious sequence of events. An MP who's been getting paid handsomely by a company attends a call and that company gets a multi-million pound contract. It's worth remembering these weren't investigated by the Standards Committee. They only dealt with allegations of lobbying against Patterson between 2016 and 2018. So these are after the period they were looking into. Patterson and, and Bethel would of course say that nothing improper happened here, but without the Department of Health releasing minutes, there is no way we can know. It's also worth mentioning that giving Randox such a contract should not have been a no-brainer. When they got the contracts, they still didn't have sufficient equipment to carry out tests. The government had to go around universities asking for extra kit, which they then provided Randox with. This was also a contract which was given out without competition. You can make your own mind up whether that looks all above board or not. The other issue the Patterson affair raises is the more general one of MPs having lucrative second jobs. We covered this in detail on Friday's show. We showed you a number of MPs who are being paid handsomely for consulting work. But since then, just over the weekend, there have been a couple of updates to the MPs register of interests. They show that former Attorney General Geoffrey Cox has been making £400,000 per year to work as a consultant global counsel for a law firm. John Redwood, a Tory backbencher, has also been raking it in. Again, this was just released this week and just updated on that register of interest. He's making just under £200,000 per year as chairman of the investment committee of Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley is a wealth management company. The focus on lucrative side jobs has generated pressure for MPs to face more restrictions when it comes to conflicts of interests and potential lobbying. Indeed, The Guardian report that the Common Standard Committee are set to look at whether consultancy jobs should be banned as second jobs for, for MPs. These are clearly the most sensitive jobs because you're employing an MP to give you advice about policy and potentially try and get policy changed. An interesting is one way of putting it. Defence of second jobs, though, has come from the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Ed Davies, who himself earns £60,000 as a political consultant to a legal services firm. Here he is speaking to Sarah Montague on Radio 4. Do you agree with the International Trade Secretary, Anne-Marie Tavellian, who said it would be wise to revisit the issue of second jobs? I mean, you, you mentioned it as something that should come up this afternoon. Would you like well, to I, see MPs, well, stopped from doing cons consultancy, what you do? 
Well, I'm absolutely happy for that to be looked at. Of course, at the moment, if the rules on second jobs, be the consultancies or or elsewhere, if they're adhered to, so MPs aren't lobbying in the way that Owen Patterson did, then then I don't think it's too much of a problem. But let's look at it. But let's look at all these issues, Sarah. Okay, no, sure, sure. But I want to ask about this because this is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting example. Here's you. I mean, you've called for this debate. You're calling for the public inquiry. But you are somebody who holds a second job as a consultant. And it's that, that's particularly people, you know, a lot of people, there seems to be um, acceptance around the idea that people who are doctors or nurses or perhaps even solicitors or have some profession, that should be allowed. But consultancy should be ended. There's a lot of people who think that. Can I just be clear? Do you think the second jobs as consultants should be ended or just the rules tightened up? Well, I think the rules can be tightened up. I don't think they should be ended. I mean, for, for my own you personal... You don't think they uh, would... Uh, you know, for, for my own personal case, let's be, be clear, um, I hadn't had any second job or consultancy for most of my time as an MP. But then I became a father of a child with severe disabilities who needs 24-7 care. And I have to say, um, in order to look after him now and in the future... I did feel I needed to find some other way to to, to increase my my income. But also, it's led me to campaigning even harder for families and carers out there. Lots of families who don't have the opportunity that I have to be able to support my son and look after my my child, given his disabilities. And I think the way that governments and local authorities and whatever provide for families and carers of children uh, with special education needs Mm, and severe disabilities, that that, that, that must be looked at. And so so I I made a decision, Sarah, I made this decision, Sarah, in order to to do this work, in order to look after my son. Ed Davey, with what is clearly a sympathetic reason for wanting to increase your income. At the same time, he is probably in in the top 5% of earners and was part of the coalition government that made life so difficult for disabled people and people who are carers of disabled people. So I have to say there is a limit to my sympathy there. Ash, what did you make of that argument that Ed Davey made? We shouldn't ban consultancies because he, you, someone might have a disabled child. The reason why they should ban consultancies and bring in much tighter restrictions overall on second jobs is because of the effect of money corrupting politics. So you might have a particularly egregious case like Owen Patterson, where he is paid to effectively lobby on behalf of two companies. But you also might have cases, and this is something which wouldn't fall foul of the rules, where you are kept on a consultancy fee to the tune of £100,000, £200,000 a year doing very little work because there's an expectation that informally you will wield your influence in favour of a particular company or indeed a sector. You just wouldn't necessarily be as cat-handed as Owen Patterson, which is to lobby without declaring your interest first to the officials that you're talking to. So that's why it needs to be stamped out. If it's the case that MPs cannot support their disabled child or pay for their child's care needs on at least £81,000 a year, well, okay, not only do you have to look at the amount of support that's available for MPs, look at the amount of support that's available for everybody else. The average salary in this country is roughly £30,000, which is a lot less than the £81,000 plus expenses that MPs can enjoy. So what is the average person supposed to do if they also have a child who's got 24-hour care needs? And I do think that there's something quite 
galling about this. And again, I'm not doubting a Davy's sincerity when he's talking about his son's care needs or the financial pressures that that entails. But he was part of a coalition government which pushed through cuts, which impacted disabled people 18 times worse than the rest of the population. So we're talking about scrapping ESA, talking about the changes to fitness to work, which we know completely ruined people's lives. They were utterly degrading and humiliating, painful for people to go through. You've got the changes to universal credit, which took money out of the welfare system. And overall, those years, which Ed Davey was a part of for the coalition portion, which is obviously before the big universal credit change, um, he was part of a government which was making the lives of disabled people in this country impoverished, less dignified, and more difficult. So if he's struggling on his £81,000 and he can't do it without topping it up with an extra £60,000 consultancy work, I don't know how he could have, in good conscience, been a part of a government which impoverished ordinary people. I first saw on on Twitter, actually, before I listened to the to the actual radio interview, sort of him saying, I need this extra money because of my child with intense needs. Now, my first thought was, well, you should be campaigning for, for the government to put more money into those sectors. To be fair to him, in that interview, he did say that. So taken on its own, that interview might have sounded reasonable to someone. But when you take it in the context of Ed Davey being a part of the government for three years, which he was, he was 2012 to 2015, he was energy minister, voting through all of those disastrous austerity policies, which Alan Clifford, who's been on the show, who I've got a, an upcoming interview with, has, has, has correctly called a war on disabled people. Him then going on the radio to say, oh, the reason I need these extra jobs is because I need to look after my disabled son. And um, I'm also you know, passionate about fighting for the rights for people with disabilities in this country. It rings completely hollow. In the last two weeks, we've seen a lot of MPs make questionable reference to difficult family circumstances to justify what seem like unethical decisions. So we saw Owen Patterson last week and Boris Johnson do it as well. Everyone referring to Owen Patterson's genuine tragedy, which was his wife's suicide, to try and justify overturning the results of the Standards Committee who found that he had acted unethically as an MP and no one seems to doubt the facts of the case. We're just supposed to take into account this somewhat unrelated issue and change that. And now we've got Ed Davey, who is, again, using what I think would be a very difficult family circumstance to justify questionable political ethical decisions. It makes me feel a little bit awkward, to say the least. Let's go back to the Randox allegations. On these, there was an interesting exchange between Angela Rayner and the minister who was in charge of giving out testing contracts. So Angela Rayner tweeted, Randox paid Owen Patterson £100,000 a year to lobby for them. Owen Patterson sat in on a call between Randox and Jim Beffel, who dished out COVID contracts. Randox was awarded over £500 million in COVID contracts without a tender or an open process. Let's call this what it is corruption. Now that's Angela Rayner, in a very pithy way actually, summarising uh, that, that Sunday Times story we showed you just earlier in the show. Lord Beffel, who was the then health minister who, who partook in that call, he quote tweets Angela Rayner and says the following, I thought that we all have a responsibility for our language and rhetoric and should avoid toxifying the national debate. This sort of consistent personal attack unfairly implies wrongdoing. 
it sneers at our national effort when in fact so many were seeking to save lives. Others were seeking to line their pockets. We know that beyond doubt. I can't say that Lord Bethel was necessarily trying to do that. In fact, I don't think there is suggestion he was trying to, to line his pockets. But many people surrounding this controversy were. Um, Angela Rayner responds, calling corruption corruption is not toxifying the national debate. It is a statement of fact. Publish your private WhatsApps and emails detailing how Randox were awarded over £500 million without tender, despite not having enough equipment and failing to deliver a previous contract. It's worth noting, also reported over the weekend, was that Lord Bethel had deleted a number of WhatsApp messages because he thought they were backed up somewhere else. He, he's changed his story about three times on that. First, he lost his phone. Then he was like, oh, no, actually, I did have the phone, but I didn't. None of it's particularly convincing. Ash, uh, I, I want to get your comment directly on the, on that debate. Lord Bethel saying it's irresponsible to call corruption corruption. Angela Rayner should have found a different word. Look who suddenly found his phone to tweet. It's <laughs> Mr... My phone was broken. No way it was lost. No way it was given to a member of my family. No way I deleted all of those key WhatsApp messages about how this company got this government contract. I thought it was backed up. So I don't know. He's running his mouth an awful lot for somebody who can't hold a credible story together for more than five seconds. That's number one. If I was his legal counsel, and by the way, I learned everything I know about the law from watching Succession and Law and Order, I would be like, shut your trap, boy. Do not be tweeting. Do not be publicly saying anything on this stuff because your credibility is in tatters. But I don't know. That's a side point. I'm just saying that, you know, Jim Bethel, I want the second job. So why don't you hire me as your independent legal consultant? I can't be any less qualified than the person who's clearly advising you right now. But then the second thing is about this stuff about, is it toxifying the, the, the debate? The way you phrased the question was, is it irresponsible to call corruption corruption? Well, no, I would say it's irresponsible not to call corruption corruption, because one of the things that we have in this country is we've developed an awful lot of language to be able to avoid using a word which we prefer to save for other countries. So we talk about chumocracy, or we talk about a breach of the lobbying rules, or we talk about second jobs rather than what it is, which is being paid to use your influence as an MP or indeed further along the line if you then become a minister. And we use this language, I think, to maintain our own sense of British exceptionalism, the sense of fair play that we are home to the mother of parliaments. But it conceals, I think, a rot within. And that rot is the way in which our rules and the norms which govern that mother of parliaments are loosely drafted in order to be able to facilitate a certain amount of corruption, the undermining and subversion of democratic processes by money, and that we call that fair play. I think that's awful. I think that's ridiculous. So I think it's irresponsible not to call egregious rule-breaking corruption. And I think it's also irresponsible not to talk about things which are operating within the rules corrupt as well, because that's one of the things I think which is wrong with how this country is run, that you can get away with murder and not seem to have broken a single law while you were at it. I mean, that is the real scandal here, isn't it? That's what we were saying last week. The real scandal about the Owen Patterson affair isn't what rules he broke, but what rules he didn't break, what was permitted in that situation. Next story. 
What's the price of a seat in the upper house of the UK Parliament? According to an analysis by the Sunday Times and Open Democracy, there is a precise answer to this question. It's three million pounds. How are they able to suggest such an exact figure? Well, the paper found that over the past 20 years, there have been 15 wealthy individuals who've been made peers after becoming Tory party treasurers and donating the party almost exactly three million pounds. The 15 ennobled donors include Peter Cruddus. He's a billionaire whose peerage was pushed through by Boris Johnson against the recommendation of the Lord's Appointment Committee. So he was very keen to get this guy into the House of Lords. The Sunday Times report, the role of Conservative Treasurer has become the most ennobled job in Britain, ahead of holders of the great offices of state, leaders of the country's institutions and charitable organisations, and even former Prime Ministers. As well as Crudders, they include the city millionaires Lord Spencer, Lord Fraser, Lord Lupton and Lord Farmer, who were ennobled in the past seven years. The mining mogul Sir Mick Davis turned down the offer of a peerage. Farmer said it had become a tradition for Conservative Prime Ministers to hand out a peerage to the holder of the party's top fundraising role. The former Vice Chairman of the party, Lord Brownlow, was also given a peerage in 2019, shortly after his donations to the party topped the three million pound mark. So as soon as you donate over three million pounds, as soon as it gets above that number, that's when you get offered the peerage. And even one of the people who went through this process seems to be admitting it. So Lord Farmer was a Tory treasurer, gave them three million pounds, and he said it's a tradition that someone who does that gets a peerage to the House of Lords. This is happening in plain sight. It's clear also from the piece that, that no one accepts this is a coincidence, as much as the government might like you to believe that. And it is widely understood among Tories that this corrupt practice takes place. So in the Sunday Times, they write... One former Tory minister said it was a scandal in plain sight, widely known and accepted in the party. A former party chairman said, the truth is the entire political establishment knows this happens and they do nothing about it. The most telling line is, once you pay your three million pounds, you get your peerage. The party never publicly acknowledges the practice. One former minister says there was a law of a murder forbidding any discussion of the link between donations and seats. So a law of silence as if this was the mafia. On Sunday, Andrew Marr challenged the Environment Secretary George Eustace on the cash for peerages story. See if you're convinced by his answer. In the past 20 years, all 16 of the Conservative Party's main treasurers, apart from the most recent, have been offered a seat in the House of Lords. Do you understand why many people will look at that and say this is a sleazy government? I don't actually. Uh, these people really? will be philanthropists um, uh, in every the, the case. Philanthropists who've given three million pounds on average each to the Conservative Party. They're not ordinary philanthropists. They're Conservative Party supporting philanthropists. Well, they're philanthropists who give huge amounts to charity, who would be very successful in business, uh, and therefore on those uh, grounds uh, ought to be considered uh, for the Lords. And in addition, the fact that they have been engaged uh, with political parties, whether that's Labour or Conservative Party. Um, people like that uh, have an interest in politics. Uh, they are philanthropists. They've made a great contribution to public life. And uh, in many cases, they've got a lot of expertise in business that uh, is valuable to the House of Lords. That was George Eustace suggesting it's entirely proper and not at all odd that everyone who gives the Tories exactly £3 million 
goes on to get a seat in Britain's legislature. He's saying uh, all it proves is that they're interested in politics. If they gave three million pounds to the Tories, that just shows they're interested in politics. It doesn't show we're in their pockets in any way. Ash, a former Tory minister, called this a scandal in plain sight. Is that a bit of an understatement? It is an understatement because this is something which has been going on for decades now. We knew this in the Blair years with the Cash for Honours scandal. There was all sorts of sleaze scandals in the 1990s. And still, it seems that not only has nothing changed, the sums of money involved have simply gotten bigger. And the ability to enforce some level of accountability has been weakened because you've got somebody like Boris Johnson who's worked out that an awful lot of our parliamentary system works on simply being a good chum and abiding by the rules and the sense of fair play. And if you simply ignore that and you see how much you can weather in terms of polling, then you simply won't be subject to the same uh, sanctions, punishments, or rules as anybody else. It's a complete farce. Now, we've had successive governments who could have been able to do something about this. And the reason why they didn't is because it was in their interest to stuff the House of Lords with as many of their big money donors as they could to strengthen the party hand when it comes to scrutinizing uh, legislation and to, you know, reward these, you know, I'd call them money pigs, I think, in our show last week, because that's exactly what they are. These are people with huge sums of money who want to exert a degree of control over our political life, which far exceeds the average citizen. And they want to be able to do it in a way which makes them part of the establishment. The minute you're a lord and you wear the ermine, all sorts of other opportunities are opened up for you, financial ones as well. So nobody has taken a step to deal with this when they could because it wouldn't benefit them. And the very simple solution for dealing with this, which is have a fully elected upper house, seems to have been abandoned by pretty much everybody in mainstream politics, apart from the Labour Party and the Corbyn, who are the only ones to take that proposition seriously. The extent to which Corbyn was the only person to take that proposition seriously is going to be our next segment. Before that, I'm going to use this opportunity to to plug our support link. As you know, Navarro Media is only possible because of our kind supporters, our regular donors. There is no threshold at which we begin to value you. And even if you give us £3 million, pounds, we, we aren't going to give you any privileged access to our editorial process. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. That's what keeps this organization going and keeps it expanding. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you are already a donor, if not, please go to navaramedia.com slash support. I've also got a comment Falk question or Falk QN. 250k per year for membership to the advisory board, three million pounds for a peerage. Since when has politics been a Patreon? Very good comment. Yeah, the 250 250- K a year, that was to membership of the of the Tories advisory board as well. So you also got extra access to the Prime Minister, which in policy terms is actually probably more influential than becoming a lord. It's it's this idea that you get to to lobby ministers. It, it sounds like these these lords, these cash for peerages people don't actually participate that much in debates. I think it might be a status thing and also an opportunity to get richer, as Ash says, because of the the status that becoming a lord gives one. Let's go on. When it comes to the scandal of cash for peerages, Labour should have a good story to tell. In the 2019 manifesto, the party pledged to abolish the House of Lords, and the commitment was retained in Keir Starmer's 10 pledges when he stood to be party leader. Part of Pledge 8 on the devolution of power was the promise to 
We can get this up. Abolish the House of Lords and replace it with an elected chamber of regions and nations. A good policy. A great time to be shouting about it would be now when everyone is talking about the Tories handing out peerages in exchange for money. Let's see what happens. Did, did Keir Starmer take advantage of that opportunity? The pledge came up on the Andrew Marr show. Let's see how Sir Keir responds. Yeah. You have said in the past that you want the abolition of the House of Lords. You want to replace it. Everyone says that in opposition. Nothing ever happens. After what we've been, we've been hearing about today, is the abolition of the House of Lords now an urgent matter for the Labour Party? And it will be big in your manifesto at the next election. Well, we certainly need change in the House of Lords. That's and, not well, saying. Do you want well, to abolish it? What I've done, Andrew, is um, I've set up a commission to look at the future of the UK, including the institutions right. such as the House of Lords. Gordon Brown is leading that. Um, in and your famous I'll look 10 at places, his... you said you were going to abolish the House of Lords. Well, are you not now going to abolish the House? I've of said Lords? we need to change the House of Lords. I stand by that. Um, I've asked Gordon Brown to look into exactly what those changes should be, and we'll look at. But you can't waking up this morning to see the Sunday Times. Um, report of, I think, 15 of the last 16 mega donors and treasurers of the Conservative Party all trooping in um, as peers to the Lord. Okay. Nobody can make the case that we don't need to change. The answer there was a bit garbled, as we've become used to with, with Sir Keir. What's clear, though, is that the Labour leader still has no understanding of the meaning of pledge. If you pledge to abolish the House of Lords, that doesn't mean you set up a commission which may or may not recommend the abolition of the House of Lords. If that was your plan, your pledge should have been to set up a commission to explore the option, not to say, you're going to do it. He should not have made that pledge if he was then just going to trash it. Ash feels almost like Groundhog Day because we have this conversation so often because Keir Starmer is just constantly breaking each one of his pledges. Do you, do you think he sees this as a, a millstone around his neck, those 10 pledges, or do you think he just doesn't mind if he's perceived as, as a liar? Well, you know what they say, pledges are made to be broken. That's why you call them pledges, which is an extra serious way of saying promise or sacred vow that you make with someone else. I mean, I can't tell if this is Keir Starmer thinking he's being an expert political maneuverer, if this is the voice of, you know, the Labour right who have sort of taken over his office and the senior advisory positions around him, or if he's just a moron. You know, I, I, I don't know. Personally, I think that this is an open goal. Everyone hates it when, as a politician, you're asked a simple yes or no question and you fail to answer yes or no. Andrew Mark could have said, do you want to abolish the House of Lords and Keir Starmer? What could go, yes, next question. Hit me. Um, and there'd be something, I think, really refreshing about that. Instead, he sort of takes us all around the houses about all the ways in which he's not going to fulfill one of the key promises he made when he was going for the job of Labour leader and squanders this opportunity. Um, I know we're going to talk about this, about, you know, is there space to the left and right? So I'm not going to go too hard on that now. But one of the things that I will say, like I said last week, is that there is a strong anti-political sensibility within this country. That's why I think Boris Johnson was forced to react to the Owen Patterson outcry. I think that's also why the Conservative Party basically airlifted him out of the debate chamber when they could, shoved him in a hospital by an MRI machine so that, you know, he looks like Mr. Nice Boris splashing money towards the NHS and stick poor Stephen Barclay or George Eustace up to front the really difficult questions. Whereas Keir Starmer can't tap into that. So even when he's offered a clear run at the goal, which is there is a cash for honours scandal 
do you want to just abolish that system and have an elected upper house? He could have just gone, well, yeah, obviously, that's the simplest solution to all of this. And actually, I think maybe he'd alienate one or two, I don't know, ermine enthusiasts out there. But I think most of the country could get behind that. And like I said, I don't know whether it's malevolence or idiocy, which keeps him from seeing that as viable political strategy. What is ermine? It's, you mentioned it on Friday and I meant to look it up over the weekend, but I forgot. Is it like the white? Yeah, it's no? the white. So an ermine is basically a white stoat. What's a stoat? A stoat is like a <laughs> ferret. So it's a oh, long, okay. weaselly animal. And so that, when I see, I see. When it's grey or brown, it's a stoat. And then when it's white, it's an ermine. I'm glad I asked. Let's go to a tweet. Someone who has outflanked Keir Starmer from the left, a surprising source. It is Andrew Neil, founding chair of GB News, who fled once it became incredibly unsuccessful. <laughs> he, he tweeted, two propositions for your consideration. Can we not just abolish the Lords, not reform it, abolish it? Why should anyone in the 21st century Britain be called Lord? If the heredities want to keep it as a title among themselves, fine. For the rest of us, why not play Mr. or Ms.? So, Ash, we've got there Andrew Neil to the left of Keir Starmer. Or you could, is this not a left-right issue? Is, is this something where we can unite the left and the right? We sort of get the left-wing populist and the right-wing populist, and it's sort of a, a kind of Brexity type thing where Labour could make some gains in unusual quarters. Maybe, because look, one of the arguments for Brexit was why should British laws be made by anyone other than elected British representatives? Now, there was a flaw in that argument, which is we obviously sent elected members of the European Parliament off to Brussels. But, you know, that seemingly wasn't good enough. And yet we have a completely unelected upper house, which is stuffed to the gills with, you know, cronies and party donors and a dwindling set of hereditary peers who are really just some chinless wonders with an ancestor who was good at sucking up to a monarch back in the day. And that's what we call the upper house. Now, I'm not saying that having an elected upper house is the be-all and end-all when it comes to dealing with um, the corrupting influence of money in politics. You only have to look at the American Senate to see that that's not true. But it is the first step. It is the first step towards saying, these are people who should be democratically accountable to us. They should be chosen by us because you know why? They are making and scrutinizing our laws. They're obviously not uh, you know, proposing legislation in the same way as the Commons, but they do have a role in shaping it and scrutinizing it, in delaying it or passing it. I've just been looking up Ermin. And they are gorgeous, which is just one more reason to abolish the House of Lords, because I do not want those little white ferrets being turned into clothes for Britain's most privileged people. Makes me feel uncomfortable. Let's go straight on to our next story. There are more delegates at COP26 associated with the fossil fuel industry than from any single country. That's the shocking conclusion arrived at by NGO Global Witness, who have assessed the participant list published by the UN. The group reports that 503 people with links to fossil fuel interests have been accredited for the climate summit. That's bigger than Brazil, who with 479 delegates have the biggest delegation of any nation. To discuss the findings and why they matter, I'm joined by Dominic Kavakeb from Global Witness. Dominic, welcome to the show. Who are these people? What does it mean to a delegate who's associated with fossil fuel interests? So um, the, w the way we've defined this is basically anyone who is affiliated with a fossil fuel company 
or a lobbyist working on their behalf. So yeah, as you say, we, we found 503 such people from a kind of deep dive analysis of the provisional list that the UNFCCC put out just a few days ago. It's probably a conservative estimate. And these are the ones that we can definitely define as, as representing fossil fuel companies. It could well be a lot more, but um, that's what we would say is the minimum. And do you think this is having a big effect on the outcomes here? In terms of are, are these 503 delegates having influence on what is being agreed or are they milling around the conference centre trying to have influence on people? What are they going to be able to get into these agreements that wouldn't have been there otherwise? Well, it was, it's hard to say for sure exactly what they're doing. I was there myself last week trying to keep a, an eye out for fossil fuel lobbyists. But funnily enough, they don't walk around with big badges telling you who they are and, and, and what they represent. But I did come across the EU's uh, own pavilion area, which is, I don't know if people are familiar with, but kind of each country has their own pavilion. And the EU's pavilion had a whole lot of side events that were being hosted on Energy Transition Day. And I think it was about five of those events were actually hosted so not just panelists, but hosted by gas companies. There was another one hosted by Hydrogen Europe, who are a huge lobby group um, based in the EU, kind of lobbying for rules around dirty, dirty hydrogen to be used. So we know that they are trying to influence those kind of debates around the periphery of the talks. We can't say exactly where they are on, on an individual moment, obviously. But what is actually quite worrying is that 27 of the uh, national delegations that we looked at and have fossil fuel delegates as part of their delegation. So that's the likes of Canada, the likes of Brazil and, and other countries. So in those instances, it's actually quite possible that they may well be able to access the talks directly and actually be part of the negotiations, which is obviously one step further in terms of being in terms of being really a, a big problem. Let's let's look at a, a statement from one of the groups you identify. So one of the biggest groups you identify are the International Emissions Trading Association or the IETA. They're backed by many major oil countries. They have 103 delegates at COP26, including three from BP, so the British Oil and Gas Company. The group responded to claims they were part of the oil and gas lobby by telling the BBC the following. We have law firms, we have project developers, the guys who are putting clean technology on the ground around the world. They're also members of our association as well. We're not coming to a shuddering halt today and tomorrow and suddenly there's going to be no emissions from the combustion of fossil fuels. There is a process to transition that's underway and carbon markets are the best way to make sure that transition takes place. So that was a spokesperson for that association. Do you think there is anything to the suggestion that it's too simplistic to include something like an emissions trading association as purely fossil fuel lobbyists? And clearly also, I mean, the message that spokesperson is trying to get forward is that given that we're not going to move away from fossil fuels tomorrow, we do have to engage with them in the short term. Is, is there anything to what that guy is putting forward? I read that statement that they gave to the BBC and, and frankly, I don't fully understand it. There's kind of all kinds of strange jargon in there. But no, of course not. You wouldn't expect to see tobacco lobbyists or people working on behalf of the tobacco industry walking around at a health convention. You'd say that's completely wrong or perverse. And I think the same argument applies. The fossil fuel industry are driving the climate crisis by and large. They are the ones who, more than any other sector, have created this mess, have put us in this mess. And you've heard so much fanfare over the last few weeks. In fact, much further back than the last few weeks, over the last couple of years, looking to COP26 as the time and place where we're going to see so much action, we're going to see so much change come out. And it's really disappointing to see that um, actually the people who are represented the most are those who've got a stake in the climate crisis, who've got a stake in the continued burning and extraction 
of fossil fuels. There was a time when they would at least try and debate it. Um, and thankfully now that, that, that seems to die down a bit. But it, it's, it's undeniable their impact on the climate crisis. They're driving the climate crisis. And so how on earth can they be part of the solution? How can they be part of those discussions? I mean, doesn't make any sense to me. Show me a fossil fuel lobbyist who's arguing for, for no more fossil fuels. There was a moment when BP called themselves Beyond Petroleum, but I think they ended up changing it back. In any case, they didn't follow through on it. Your report, the research you've done, will, I suppose, support the position of people like Greta Thunberg, who have suggested that COP26 is not much more than a PR exercise. Let's look at a, a clip of her speaking in Glasgow. The leaders are not doing nothing. They are actively creating loopholes and shaping frameworks to benefit themselves and to continue profiting from this destructive system. This is an active choice by the leaders to continue to let the exploitation of people and nature and the destruction of present and future living conditions to take place. The COP has turned into a PR event where leaders are giving beautiful speeches and announcing fancy commitments and targets. While behind the curtains, the governments of the Global North countries are still refusing to take any drastic climate action. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a Global North Greenwash Festival. two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. Dominic, does your research, does your analysis support what she's saying there, that COP26 is just a greenwashing exercise and it's not really achieving anything meaningful? Obviously, it does to some degree. I mean, it adds, it certainly adds to the skepticism and the cynicism that people will rightly have about the ability of these kind of international conferences to actually deliver the change that we want to see. So I can totally get that argument on, on the one hand, but it's not just that, you know, like we already would have doubts over these sets of world leaders actually delivering on the climate crisis and the fact that it is COP26 and we're still not really seeing change. The Paris Agreement was signed 2015 and we're still on course to breach 1.5 degrees at, at some point in the, in the near future. So the cynicism is, is very, very easy to understand and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't criticize anyone, especially not Greta, for taking that position. But I mean... You have to try and take the positives about the situation. And there are positives. The reason why so many people are looking at this COP and so many people are talking about this COP is because climate, the climate crisis has really exploded into people's, um, into people's psyches. And I think a big part, well, one of the biggest reasons for that is undoubtedly the street movements that people have been taking to the streets all over the world, youth activists to really propel this into people's minds. Um, and so... People around the world are looking to this COP for action, and you could very well make the case that actually we're not going to see anything positive come out of it. We have seen some commitments already made by a number of countries, and on paper you would say some of these commitments are actually pretty good. Whether they're going to be delivered and whether they go far enough and whether they are worth the, the paper they're written on is, is a whole different matter altogether. So I would say, look, the cynicism is easy, but you know, I, as I say, I was there last week myself, and it almost feels pardon the pardon, like a good cop, bad cop situation. On the one hand, um, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got the people in power who are sitting around the rooms who are, you know, who are doing the blah, 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 as Greta um, has kind of rightly put it. But at the same time, it's also an immensely powerful experience to be surrounded by um, indigenous leaders from, from all around the world, to be, um, you know, part of the people on the outside who are, who are having their voices heard. So 
it's it's very difficult to say that come the end of this week we're going to be on the right path towards reversing the climate crisis but lots more people are beginning to think about this lots more people are taking it seriously and and the more that happens the harder it is for our leaders to to ignore what is blindingly obvious dominic kavakeb thank you so much for speaking to us this evening um about the the very interesting research that global witness have have been doing cheers michael um, let's go to our final story. There's a genre of video we've become familiar with from the United States. They're intended to be heartwarming, but in reality, they're incredibly depressing. These videos usually relate to someone who desperately needs to raise money for essential health care and the group of well-meaning people who club in to pay for it. So it's, it's, of course, supposed to be heartwarming because people have, have shown their altruism to donate money to, to help someone. The, the kindness of the human spirit is on show. However, for, for UK audiences where we have the NHS, our actual reaction is, why is this person having to beg for funding for essential care? Now, we do still have free healthcare in the UK. So this exact type of video, fortunately, hasn't come to Britain yet. But the style of television has nonetheless arrived. This tweet is from ITV's This Morning. So they tweet, Chemotherapy has Beth feeling cold all the time, and with a broken boiler, all she wanted was to win some money to fix her heating. But we couldn't let her spend her winnings on that, so our friends at British Gas have come to fix her boiler free of charge. Our bosses all sat round a table and we thought we cannot let you spend your thousand pounds on your heating. We want you to enjoy yourself with that money. We've got British Gas here. Here's Sonny from British Gas. He's coming to fix your boiler free of charge. We just, oh, do you know what? Oh, Ben, there's your daughters. Oh, Ben. Oh, God, I'm going to go. Oh, thank you so much. Are you all right? I, I mean, you've just won a thousand pounds, oh and, you, and you've got your boiler fixed. How, how do you Hi. feel? Hi. Oh, Sunny, this is Sunny. Sunny from British Gas. He's going to come in and fix everything for you. We cannot have you Thank being cold. You, you feeling all Thank right? Thank you. Oh, oh, no. Becky, Libby, how do you feel? Yeah. 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 Oh, so, do you know what? It couldn't have gone to a better home, and let's hope you stay warm. Obviously, the woman in that clip is genuinely moved. She's won a thousand pounds. British Gas are fixing her boiler for free, so she doesn't have to um, immediately spend that thousand pounds on fixing her boiler. My reaction, though, is that it's kind of crazy it's got to this. Ash, cancer sufferers should not have to enter competitions to heat their homes. It's kind of dystopian that it came to this point at all and again this isn't about whether or not she should have gotten the money or should or shouldn't have gotten her boiler fixed actually she shouldn't have had to go through the process of having to enter into a competition hope to be noticed hope that her plight's taken seriously and then her having in return to kind of display this emotion and gratitude in order to create the tv moment because there's a two-way dynamic here which is she gets the money as long as she can be in some ways the perfect and ideal victim who is then so grateful for being helped that it makes everyone feel really good about themselves rather than going well how is it that a cancer patient who's currently going through chemotherapy is in such financial straits that she can't fix her boiler and is presumably having to 
endure such harsh restrictions on her spending that she's having to make those kinds of choices between heating and food or other kinds of expenses. And I hesitate to put it like this, but there is sometimes something exploitative in charity and how it's televised and how it's mediatized, that there is something really exploitative in there. And we use that exploitative media dynamic as a flimsy band-aid, really, for what's wrong with our social safety net. There are millions of people who experience fuel poverty in this country that's only going to increase over this winter where we know that there is a sort of perfect storm of cost of living crisis, economic uncertainty and rising gas prices. How many of those people aren't going to have producers notice them in a televised competition? So, yeah, there's something about this which makes me feel very squeamish and uncomfortable too, Michael. I mean, we can look at the context, the sort of political context of this, because according to the End Fuel Poverty Coalition, there are 3.66 million households in fuel poverty. That means they cannot afford to heat their homes to an adequate temperature. The £20 cut to universal credit means this is going to get worse. So charities have warned that that £20 cut will mean families choosing between heating their homes or having adequate food to eat. So you're going to need a lot of morning television competitions to sort that out. There aren't enough mornings in the year to give £1,000 to free 0.66 million households. Do you think, Ash, that, because I suppose the thing that shocks us when we watch those clips from America, which is sort of how I introduced this segment, where someone, you know, has diabetes and they don't have health insurance, and so a bunch of people in their community club together so that they can buy their insulin. And if you're in America, these clips are quite popular, so there must be some people in the country who are watching this thinking it's completely normal that someone is having to basically go around with with a hat and ask for people to benevolently give them money so they don't die. Obviously, you couldn't make that in Britain because everyone in Britain would be like, what the hell is going on here? Do you think we have normalized other forms of poverty to the extent that most people watching that video will think it's completely normal? Or do you think there are a lot of people who watch that and think, actually, even if the presenters aren't pointing out that this is completely wrong, maybe it is a problem that people who are you know, literally undergoing chemotherapy cannot afford to heat their houses. I think that there has always been this sort of cultural staple of what you would call charity porn, where you identify certain people as perfect victims, whether it is somebody who is, you know, a struggling mum and very moral and has, you know, a kind of perfect story, or you find the perfect homeless man who doesn't have substance abuse issues or has never been in prison or something like that. And you create a spectacle of them having some of their most basic needs met, or indeed their impoverished condition being overturned entirely and then you make that a symbol of well look how generous as a society we are look how uh, responsive we are to people suffering now that image of the individual's gratitude for that is probably entirely sincere the relief the joy the celebration the sense of oh my god my life has got hope that's totally sincere but how the image functions to tell us about ourselves as a society is completely misleading now this isn't something which is brand new this is also how victorian culture worked you had this division between the deserving and the undeserving poor you had a sort of class of 
aristocratic and bourgeois philanthropists who derived a sense of their own morality by distinguishing between who deserved their largesse and who didn't and punishing the ones that didn't. And by that, you could make yourself more of an upstanding member of society. And by kind of uplifting and throwing money and opportunity or some kind of uh, employment stability towards the ones who are deemed deserving. So this is something which is as old as the hills. And it is quite, I think, embedded in British culture in a way that we haven't had to look at quite so deeply because we had a welfare state and because we've got something like an NHS. But as that social safety net has been really slashed to pieces over recent decades, I do think that you will see this like horrible cultural response, which is creating a spectacle of one incident of giving charity as a way to conceal the, the deeper rot within. It's supposed to show the sort of wonderfulness of humanity. That's that's why it's so stark i think because it's supposed to show the wonderfulness of humanity and it kind of shows the exact opposite thank you ash for joining me tonight well michael i must have been pretty tired too because i realized i made a mistake and i misled you earlier how did you mislead me so the white fur on the robes in the house of lords it's not quite ermine it's miniver because ermine would have distinctive black spots and miniver is all white so it's a tiny mistake, but I am devastated and I will be offering you my resignation first thing in the morning. <laughs> but it's still a cute little animal. It's still fur. It's still a cute little animal. It's right. still a cute little animal. But precision is everything. Precision no, is you're everything. Right. And as Navarra right. Media's royal correspondent, I take the weird habits of the aristocracy very seriously. Let's stop killing cute animals to make Britain's privileged people feel important in the House of Lords. That's it for tonight. I'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.